Get your Bibles and open to John chapter 13. We're looking at uh, verse 21 through 30, and I'm actually gonna we're gonna dip our toe in 31. But um, so John chapter 13, verses 21 through 31, we'll be reading together. This is the word of God. Perfect and true in everything. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, in your great love for us, you have given us the Lord's day to come, to remember, to receive, to repent, to encourage each other to love and good deeds, to hear the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonders of your law. Lord, open my mouth to proclaim it rightly. Lord, open our ears that we may hear and open our hearts to receive it today. In your son's name we pray, amen. The book of John, the book of John could be divided and some have divided it into two books The first half, up to about where we are now, would be called the Book of Signs. And here we turn now to this section called the Book of Glory. Jesus has been walking with his disciples. Jesus has been teaching his disciples And throughout this time, we hear him over and over again as people try to thrust him into aspects of his ministry, say, it's it's not my time yet. It's not my hour. It's still daylight. There's still work to be done. And sign after sign after sign, Jesus shows these people in the book of signs. But now we come to this division where we move from this book of signs or this this time of signs and and daytime and and the light is with them to a time of darkness 
Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, as we heard last week. He has taken on, the, the, the Lord of glory has become the servant of his own disciples, has wrapped a towel about his waist and went and, and, and like a lowly slave has washed their feet. And now after he finishes this great love that he shows to them, he says, John says, after these things, after washing their feet, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We're going to see three, three things in this section, three simple It's a simple outline today. It's just simply this. Our Lord is troubled. Our Lord was betrayed. Our Lord is glorified. And I believe as we walk through this, watching Jesus and listening to John, I I hope that we too who are troubled and we too who have possibly been betrayed can see also how because of His trouble and because of His betrayal, we too can be glorified. So let's begin. Number one, troubled. Look at verse 21 again. It says, After these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The word here translated trouble in his spirit could also mean stirred up inside. The term, when it's used concretely, is actually used of water being stirred. Three times this same phrase is used by John to describe Jesus' inner agitation. When Jesus comes, when he arrives at the friend, uh, at the grave of his dear friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, he goes out to, to go to the, the tomb, and there he sees Mary. And listen, it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many of us have, have come to the side of a, of a friend who's losing a loved one? How many of us have, have been at the hospital with those who have been passing? As a pastor, it's been our obligation and our privilege to, to be with people when they've lost loved ones. Even in our own church, we have recently faced this, haven't we? The loss of, of sweet loved ones. And people's hearts break. And Jesus sees Mary. And she falls at his feet. And look what it says. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is the same phrase. He's greatly troubled. As Jesus faces his own death in John chapter 12, He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. As he sees his friend Lazarus dying, his soul is troubled. When he faces his own impending death, he says, my soul is troubled. And again, Jesus, uh, John uses this term as he describes Jesus comforting his disciples at the reality of his own death. Jesus turns to his disciples and says in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And later he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, 
do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So this sense of this troubling is there with Jesus when he's in the upper room as he turns from washing their feet and turns to, to this, this next dark time. Jesus' insides are, are like the sea, buffeted by winds and, and churning. One writer has said this, Jesus' emotions are shown to be in a state of turmoil, his whole inner self convulsing at the thought of one of his closest followers betraying him to his enemies. Jesus echoes here the psalmist David in Psalm 6. Listen to David's cry, and you can hear it in our Savior as well. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me from the sake of your steadfast love. We see in Jesus' troubled spirit real evidence of his true humanity, don't we? We see here, yes, he is fully God and fully man, but Jesus is troubled. His insides are churning. His emotions are in turmoil. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of Christ in Isaiah 53, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Don't pass over that phrase too quickly. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a man, a man of sorrows. He is truly God, yes, but he is truly man. And as a man, he experiences the depth of sorrow. And Isaiah says he is acquainted with grief. The idea is that he's familiar with it. He's experienced with it. He knows what it is to grief. And Jesus here is experiencing something like we experience. We can be encouraged because Jesus himself is in turmoil, just as we have been in turmoil in our own lives, just as we have been troubled in our own lives. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted or tested as we are yet without sin. How many times have we been talking to someone maybe at a higher status of us, someone, an employer maybe, or someone who's, who's uh, very different from us, and you're saying, you don't understand me. You don't, you don't get it. I can't just go out and do this or do that. I, I happen to be sitting at Starbucks this morning as I, was, I, I, I sit there and I read through my notes and I, I, I make little notes to myself and I'm thinking, and there's two guys sitting behind me who were talking about which seatbelt best worked in their Ferraris. It was, it was very interesting. <laughs> what do you think? You think this one? I don't know. That one's kind of cool. But what about this one? What about these certain kind of little hex bolts that I'm going to replace those? You think I should? I don't know what to do. I was like, you know, I want to turn and say, you know, <laughs> I was troubled in spirit. <laughs> I, 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 I can't relate. I, I, I can't relate. My Veloster is pretty fast. Yes, my Hyundai. <laughs> but I can't relate. But, but Jesus, 
is not like that. It says Jesus is not this God who's just over there, who's, who's, who's completely transcendent. But no, he is eminent as well. We don't have a high priest. So, so we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he's lived here. He's walked here. He's walked on this planet. He's lived on this planet. And he is troubled at this place. In this specific setting, he may be thinking ahead to his impending suffering and death. But even before that, he must face the friend who is sitting near him. Why is Jesus troubled? John tells us because he has been betrayed. Jesus says, truly, truly. He speaks with authority. This is usually that, 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 that upfront uh, saying that he says before some of his profound teachings. And here he says with authority, truly, truly, this is true. Hear me. I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this is not the first mention of the betrayal. Jesus has prepared his disciples for it a number of times. Just very quickly, just listen as we go through John. John chapter 6, 64 but there are some of you, this is Jesus teaching, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. John 6, 60, Jesus said, did I, choose, uh, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? John 6, 71, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. John 12, 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. John 13, 2, during supper, the devil had already put it into Judas Iscariot's heart, Simon's son, to betray him. John 13, 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. John 13, 18, Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus here makes this authoritative, declarative, declarative statement. And the disciples are, are left blinking and, and looking about. John continues, he says, the disciples looked at one another. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples, you, can, you, can see, you can't just see them, right? Just kind of blink, blink, what, what? And they look about what? They looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Then one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. What's happening here is during this time of Passover, there, the, 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 the habit or the tradition was to, was to recline. And you would, you would lean on your left elbow and you would reach to the table with your right. And so the, the feet are all sticking out this way. And we're all gathered around this small uh, lower table or, 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 or blanket of some sort. And they're, they're reaching in and eating there. And so they're all reclining together. And one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved which is basically, we, we believe, of course, the disciple John was reclining at his side. So Simon motions to John and says, ask Jesus who he's talking about. So that disciple, John, leans back against Jesus as they're very close to each other. You can see him kind of maybe look over his shoulder. And he says that, that maybe not everyone hears it. He says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered to John, it's he whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. There are a number of times when during Passover there's some dipping of bread and some ceremonial sharing of the matzah. And so he dips it 
and he gives it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This actually fulfills prophecy, the prophecy, the bread prophecy of Psalm 41, referring to this morsel. In Psalm 41, 9, it says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In Jewish culture, the idea of having someone into your home and sharing bread with them is what you do with the trusted friends, loyal friends. You've been in my house. You're my friend. You're close to me. You've sat with me. You've eaten with me. But he's lifted his heel against me. And some of us maybe have have been there. I can recall friends, uh, a friend specifically in my, in my past comes to my mind who, who I uh, loved and cared for and invested in and, and trained up and gave responsibility to and, and, and gave theological books to and, and helped and did all these things. And then later when it comes time to stand on the Word of God, this friend turns. And the very things that we stand in and we've trained this friend in, who you've seen risen up and, and, and join hands together in ministry, ends up turning and then rolling their eyes and clucking their tongue, saying wicked things about me or about others. And I can remember, you, you, your, your, your heart is troubled. Your insides churn. You're thinking, no, what, what? You, you, you're, my, you're my friend. You're the, the person I've invested in, the person I've loved, the person I've cared for. And, you... and it says this, what, he's a close friend in whom I've trusted. He ate my bread and he's lifted his heel against me. He's lifted his heel against me. Jim Browning and I were up at the land last year getting ready for the loft retreat. And um, there can be some, I can say this, right? There can be some snakes there. <laughs> I don't want to scare anybody, okay? No, no, no parents say, that's it, no more kids going to the loft retreat. Jim and I, he's walking me around the, 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 the grounds. He's showing me this and he's showing that. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And as we walk around, we're standing outside with this, they call the line shack, right? This little cabin, it's very cool, and, and he's showing me the neat work that they've done and how he's prepared for this retreat, and, and uh, as we're standing there, he's talking about, yeah, we did see a snake, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and this and that, and as he's talking about it, we're talking and talking and talking, and then, and I literally look down, and I go, well, there's one right there, <laughs> and little coiled up right between the two of us as we're talking, there's a little rattlesnake right there, pretty small, but it was a snake, and it's there, and what did I do? I lifted my heel against it. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, just watch. <laughs> and I lifted up my boot. I was wearing boots, and I came down, bam! And, and Jim's like, I heard it pop. <laughs> right? And I crushed it. And then we smacked it with a rock and pulled out my knife and cut his head off. Right? <laughs> Take that. When we lift our heel... The purpose of the lifting of the hill is, is to crush, to destroy, 
to injure. Jesus gives this bread to a close friend, one in whom he's trusted. He eats the bread and prophetically, the psalmist says, he's, hit, he's lifted his heel against me. Verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Dipping the piece of bread, Jesus gives it, it's interesting they say, Jesus gives it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon Iscariot. The use of Judas's full name underscores the solemnity of the, of the occasion. It's like your mom, it's like my mom when she says, Thomas Kevin Bryan, you know she's serious. It's not just any old Judas. It is this Judas specifically. Uh, one theologian, Herman Ritterboss, says this, Everything that until now, let me start over. Everything that until now has awaited fulfillment becomes real. The bread prophecy of Psalm 41, the Satan-inspired plan to betray Jesus, Satan himself moving into action, all these things have awaited the signal that Jesus, into whose hands the Father has put all things, had to give. He now gives that signal expressly to Judas. Yes, Jesus is betrayed. But what we see here is that Jesus is in control. He still is the sovereign God of the universe. And we remember what he proclaimed in John 10, 17 to 18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus here gives the signal to Judas and sends him off. Jesus is in control. Jesus lays down his life. And even in this, we see that he still is in control. He still is sovereign over all these things. Jesus comes to sacrifice his life for us. No one takes his life from him. Verse 28, Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Go buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger, in his commentary, uh, writes on both these, these things, and he says this, Some thought that Jesus was telling Judas to buy what was needed for the festival, this being the night of the Passover, 15 Nisan, the disciples thought that Judas was dispatched to buy what was needed for the festival, not Passover, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, started that very night and went on for seven days. Since the next day, Friday, which is still 15 Nisan, was a high feast day and the following day was a Sabbath, Jesus might have considered it expedient to make necessary purchases such as more unleavened bread that night. So they may be thinking that, okay, we're in the middle of Passover, but Jesus is sending Judas to go and, and get some more matzah, some more bread for the, 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 the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Notice who carries the money bag with the apostles. They've elected someone to carry the money bag. Who's carrying the money bag? Judas. 
Do you give the money bag if you have a, you know, when you have a little club at school and we elect the treasurer, do you give the guy, the guy with the snarly lip and the hook hand, you know, and <laughs> give him the money bag, right? He's got, no, no. You don't look at Judas and go, ah, yes, that's the guy. He's a thief, right? He's a murderer. He's a betrayer. No, he was trusted. And so they give him the money bag. And so this may be why they're thinking maybe that's what he's doing. Uh, others think that Judas has maybe gone on an errand to dispatch money for the poor. Uh, Kostenberger also says, almsgiving was an important part of Jewish piety. So for pilgrims to Jerusalem, it was customary to give alms to the poor because they're, they're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And on Passover night, the temple gates were left open from midnight on, allowing beggars to congregate. So they may be thinking, yes, this is, this is what we do. It's our tradition. But John allows us to know exactly what Judas is about. Satan has entered him and now commanded by Jesus to do what he has to do. He leaves. And John tells us, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Judas accepts the morsel of bread from Jesus, but then betrays the bread of life. Judas goes into the darkness to assist in the plan to snuff out the light of the world. He is sent into the night where all who betray Jesus must go. I think we have two things happening in this passage. John, in his, inspired by the Holy Spirit and in his great eloquence, is really showing us two ideas here. One is that, yes, the night is, is, is spiritual darkness. And Jesus sends Judas into the night. You're no longer to stay with my disciples, my true disciples, but you are now being cast out into the night, into the darkness. Where we see hell is described, right? Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He has to go into the night, into the darkness, out of the presence of the light, Jesus Christ. Also we see in this, uh, Jesus uh, in some ways separating the sheep from the goats. Knowing that these are my true disciples and you are not, you must leave. You are to go out from my presence. But what happens next is quite amazing. In the next verse, we see that Jesus is glorified. When we look at the Gospel of John, throughout his Gospel, light and glory is a theme that runs throughout the entire Gospel. Time after time after time, John talks about the light, the light, the light of the world, Jesus being the light and the glory of God. And so we see this when we come to this point of, of great darkness and night, it's interesting that the very next passage, the very next verse, Jesus speaks of himself being glorified. Listen in, uh, as we work through just some, some passages quickly. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, John 1.7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. 1.8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 1-9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
uh, chapter 319, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds or his works be exposed. John 3.21, for whoever does what is true comes to the light so that in him, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 5.35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you, will, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John 8.12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not work, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9.5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. John 11.9, are there not 12 hours in the day, Jesus says? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, John 11.10, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John 12.35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe the light that you may become sons of light. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light and that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Do you see that? The light has come. The light is there. The light is living. The light is shining. And here we come to this episode. And John says, when Judas leaves, and it was night. I don't think the reference to night in verse 30 is merely to tell us what time of day it is. John Piper says this, Then after Judas had taken the morsels, Satan entered into him. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he went out, and it was night. The gospel, as we just read, began with the triumphant words, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And Jesus says in John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day because night is coming when no one can work. There was a work that the disciples could not do together while it was day. And they did for three years, a work that they could do. And they did it with Jesus for three years. Jesus completed that work and now the night has come where no one... No one but Jesus can do this work. And he does this work in spite of the darkness, but with the unwitting, God-appointed help of the darkness. Only Jesus can destroy the darkness by being enveloped by darkness. Do you hear that? Only Jesus can destroy the darkness by being enveloped by darkness. Only Jesus can abolish death by being swallowed up by death, like Jonah in the fish. Only Jesus can disarm Satan by surrendering to his servants. Remember the, the, the words of the Lord a few hours later in the garden when the, when the mob came from him. He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But we see limitations of darkness, don't we? This is your hour. This is your hour, not your century, not your decade, not your year, not your month or your week. God has appointed boundaries of your hour and it will only last until when? Sunday morning. And then Jesus will come out. He will break the chains of death. He will dispel the darkness. He will nullify the power of Satan. 
His redeeming work will be finished. All the sins of His people will be paid for. The judgment and condemnation of all God's people will be over. And there will be a flawless, gorgeous robe of righteousness completed for Jesus' beautiful bride. That passage, verse 30, ends with, And it was night. Look at verse 31. When he had gone out. When who had gone out? Judas. When the betrayer leaves. When the one who is working in the darkness. When he had gone out, Jesus says this. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. I'm not going to steal all the thunder of the pastor who's preaching next week who's going to preach this whole section. But we see at Christ's darkest moment, at the darkest point of night, that is when Jesus is glorified. Jesus has come for this reason. He has come for this hour, and now this is His hour. It's His time to do His work. The disciples' work is finished for a moment. They can't help Him in this. This is the work that He alone can do, where He alone will be glorified. And then ultimately, because of His glorification, we, end up, we, we will be glorified, won't we? This is His most glorious achievement which Pastor Jeff mentioned to us already today in communion. It's the cross of Christ. It's where he's heading. It's where he's going. It's where we'll continue over these next few weeks. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Our Savior, our Savior was troubled. Yes, he was, he was troubled because of the torment of his spirit. But because of his trouble, because of his torment that he was willing to bear for us, he tells us, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Some of us need to hear that. Our hearts are troubled. Our hearts are in turmoil Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus Christ. And if you have done that, then your heart doesn't need to be troubled. Jesus tells, don't let your hearts be troubled. Have faith in God. Yes, our Savior was betrayed. He was betrayed, but, but guess what? He will never betray us. He will never betray us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Men will turn their backs on you. Women will turn their back on you. Friends will, will let you down. Children, parents, because we're sinners. But Jesus Christ will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He was betrayed for us, but He Himself, He will never betray us. 
And yes, he was and is glorified. And because of his glorification, friend, Christian, you will be glorified as well. You will be glorified as well. Second, Second Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12, Paul the Apostle says this, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Why? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? The Apostle Paul prays for us, those believers who will believe on Christ in the future, so that what? The name of Jesus may be glorified in you, in us, and that we would also be glorified in him. And that is our prayer this day, isn't it? That is our prayer today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we see your, your son Jesus. We're thankful that he came in the flesh. We're thankful that we have a high priest who knows us, who understands us, who feels our troubles who knows what it is to be in great turmoil as well. We thank you that even though in his betrayal, that sovereign Lord, sovereign God, you were not unaware of what was happening. You'd even be, uh, encouraged and, 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 and prepared your disciples for this great thing that was going to happen, even though they may, have, may not have understood it at that time. We thank you that, that he went to the cross for us. And because of that, he is glorified. And we want to glorify you, Lord Jesus, today as we sing your praises, as we speak of you, as we pray to you. Lord, help us to glory, to glorify you and to glory in you. Lord, we thank you someday that we will, in these frail bodies, be fully and totally glorified and we'll be like you, our, our blessed Savior in heaven. Lord, we do pray for anyone who has yet to put their hope and trust in Christ this morning. If some are still on the verge, we pray that they would not die there, but they would hear the word, believe it, and trust you as Lord and Savior, even today. We pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.